1: The books that make the news really do so because of their prose, or even how well they sell. Usually it's because they stir up controversy. To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee has been on countless reading lists in middle schools and high schools across the United States. Set in 1936, it follows the story of a small-town lawyer defending the innocence of a black man falsely accused of a heinous crime. And since its publication in 1960, it's found itself on another kind of list in some schools, namely the banned book list. Books are banned for a variety of reasons. It might be due to their subject matter or the author's personal beliefs. Regardless of the reason, those titles not only become prohibited, they also become coveted. Because who doesn't want to read a book that's been deemed forbidden, right? Well, the Puritans, apparently. Thomas Morton was a lawyer from Devon, England, who had endured a fairly conservative upbringing. His family were members of the landed gentry and enjoyed a comfortable lifestyle paid for by the people renting their lands— Yet, despite his traditionalist childhood, Morton grew up more progressive over time. During his years studying law in the 1590s, he fell in with the libertine crowd, shunning the trends of the time by enjoying a life of fun and partying. He set sail for Massachusetts in 1622, where he was taken aback by the Puritans and their, well, puritanical beliefs. As a result, he returned to England in 1623 to prepare for a more productive visit the following year. When Morton came back to Massachusetts in 1624, it was as part owner of the Wollaston Company. He founded a new settlement called Marymount on land given to him by the native Algonquins. And unlike the Puritans, who saw them as savages to be controlled or killed, Morton got along well with his indigenous neighbors. He even regarded them as more civilized and humanitarian than those of his countrymen in Plymouth, who had shunned the more free-thinking ways that Morton held. In fact, the colony didn't just dislike Morton they went to war with him. Puritan militias broke up his pagan festivals and spread rumors about the debaucherous things going on in his town. In reality, much of the backlash was due to how quickly Marymount was growing. Many of their business ventures, like fur trading and farming, were taking off, and Plymouth just couldn't compete. Morton was also trading guns with the Algonquins, who had already been marked as enemies by the Puritans. Soon enough, Plymouth's commander, a guy named Miles Standish, used his armed militia to take control of Marymount and then arrested Morton. And the blasphemous act that had done him in? The Marymount May Day celebration. May Day had started as an ancient festival celebrated on the 1st of May with singing, dancing, and delicious food. But the Puritans of the Plymouth colony only saw it as a heathen's paradise. For his indiscretion, Morton was tried and exiled to the Isle of Shoals, a small cluster of deserted islands between Maine and New Hampshire. But don't worry, Morton survived, with the help of the native peoples who brought him food from the mainland. When he eventually made it back to Marymount, the Puritans had reduced it to a shadow of its former self. This time he was banished to England, but once there he found a new way to get revenge that he craved. He sued the colony And because England had already been at odds with the Puritans, King Charles used Morton's case as the perfect excuse to formally revoke Plymouth's charter. Next, Morton decided to parlay his success with the lawsuit into a brand new endeavor. He wrote a series of books about his experiences in Massachusetts called New English Canaan, and the books took aim at the men behind the Plymouth colony. Their real names were replaced with unflattering nicknames, of course. Miles Standish was referred to as Captain Shrimp, while Massachusetts Bay Governor John Endicott was called Captain Littleworth. Within the pages of Morton's New English Canaan, he insulted their beliefs and policies, and suggested the best approach to the New World was integrating the colonies with the Native tribes, the way Marymount had done. Unsurprisingly, Plymouth's governor, William Bradford, hated the books. He went to great lengths to keep anyone else from reading them, which is why New English Canaan is widely considered to be the first book banned in America. Although the English government destroyed the first edition of the book soon after its publication, a few copies did survive, and so did Morton's legacy. His exploits were immortalized in works by Nathaniel Hawthorne, Stephen Vincent Bennett, and Philip Roth. All those headaches and all that trouble only resulted in a legacy that has lived on for 400 years, and all they had to do to keep it from happening was to let the man do the one thing he wanted, the fight for his rights to party.
2: the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva, Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
0: Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer.
1: Most of us have experienced a bad day now and then. Maybe a stretch of bad luck here or there, or even a rare major setback. The loss of a job, a car accident on the way to work. You know the drill. But some people have experienced even worse. Blunders that alter their life forever, or don't just cost the company money, but cost it everything. And at the bottom of that deep well of failure is one particular story from a few decades ago, and it's sure to make you feel better about your own current circumstances. When Leon Viator and his son Timmy went fishing on November 21st of 1980, they assumed that everything would go well. Maybe they'd catch something, or maybe they wouldn't, but their lives would never really be in danger. So they set out in their boat to see what could happen. Their fishing spot was a small freshwater lake about 15 miles south of Lafayette in Louisiana, known as Lake Penure. It wasn't massive, maybe 10 feet deep, but it was a lovely location, and it even had its own small island, Jefferson Island, where visitors can find the Rip Van Winkle Live Oak Gardens. But it wasn't all beautiful. From their seats in the boat, Leon and Timmy could also see an oil rig, It turns out that, in a search for more natural resources to take advantage of, oil giant Texaco had hired a local company to do a test drill right in the middle of the lake. So, our intrepid fishermen steered away, giving the oil rig some distance in hopes that the fish would follow. But that's when something went wrong. Now, typically, an oil rig will drill down until their target is reached, valuable, precious oil. And we can all imagine those little geysers of black liquid shooting up from the ground, signaling success. But at about 1,200 feet, the oil crew felt something different. It was as if the drill had broken free, which might have signaled a bad day for them. But it was about to get worse. Because not only did they not see the telltale geyser of oil that they were after, but the water around the drill shaft began to move. In fact, it almost looked as if it were swirling, And within a matter of minutes, that swirling motion looked an awful lot like a bathtub that's had the drain plug pulled. Which is exactly what had happened. Because their drill had cut through the lake bed, a thousand feet of rock, and then straight into an active salt mine that they didn't know was there. And the moment the hole was formed, the entire lake decided that it wanted to go down it. What happened next was something out of a Michael Bay disaster movie. All 2.5 billion gallons of water in the lake surged into the hole, creating a massive vortex that pulled anything around it down with it. A tugboat that was present at the oil rig was sucked down and disappeared. And then one of the heavy-duty barges. In fact, before it was all over, all 11 barges that were present were gone. And it wasn't just boats that were at risk. The water actually began to erode and pull away chunks of the land around it. At least 65 acres of land were dissolved and pulled into the hole, including much of the live oak gardens. And as all of it drained downward, the water level fell so low that something else happened. You see, there's a canal that connects the lake to the Gulf of Mexico, so that water could flow out into the ocean if needed. But now that canal had begun to run north, sending water from the gulf into the lake and the salt mine below it. And in the process, it created a massive 150-foot waterfall, the largest on record in Louisiana. Thankfully, all 55 men working in the salt mine were able to evacuate, and no one lost their lives that day. And once the mine filled up, the lake eventually returned to whatever the new normal was for it. Even our friends the fishermen managed to survive, riding their little boats all the way to the muddy bottom before being able to climb out and walk to safety. We've all had bad days, but when you consider a story like this, where someone drilled a hole in the world and made an entire lake disappear, well, it's hard to feel like a total failure. Fun? Probably not. But curious? You better believe it. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities.